Well, good morning. For those that don't know me, I'm Bruce Drugsma, pastor of community and spiritual formation here at Wise Out of Free. Thank you for the kind introduction, Luke. Um, I'm excited to be here. We are in the middle of a series called Passion and Suffering, talking about Lent, getting ready for Easter to arrive, going through this time, walking with Jesus, journeying towards the cross. And as the worship team and Bree led us in the Apostles' Creed, what an appropriate way to start. To talk about confession, both in the confession of sin as something that's significant in Lent, but also confession of what is true and what we believe. And so I think that's an appropriate place for us to be. We're going to continue that. We're talking about the swords. Last week, Kevin Meyer, uh, lead pastor, talked about the sword that would pierce Mary's soul at the birth of Jesus, that prophecy from Simeon. And so we're going to talk about confusion. And I think it's appropriate that we're talking about confusion this week of all weeks, because if you're anything like me, your bracket is completely trashed (laughs) after last week. I had Kentucky going the whole way. I'm dead. So I'm I'm done. Um, So confusion. But even more than March Madness, confusion does kind of reign in our world today, whether it's invasions in Ukraine or whether it's pandemic and we're seeing stuff rise again or what your kids are facing in school or what you're facing at work or what you're facing at home. I think it's safe to say that we can look around our world today and say it can be a really confusing place. And so as we engage in this confusion, we also acknowledge that scripture at times is confusing. We're going to look at Luke 22. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to go there, whether it's a physical Bible or a digital one. We'll be in Luke 22. Uh, It's a confusing passage because it doesn't always make sense. And part of the reason sometimes scripture doesn't make sense, I think, is because we approach scripture knowing the end. Right? Like having read a book before, um, I, I've read some novels in my life multiple times, and the first time you read it, you're waiting in suspense for something to happen. And the second time, you're less suspense because you know what happens. It's like watching the movie Titanic. We know the boat's going to go down. So there's, there's, there's a little bit of a lack, we'll say, of trepidation and concern. And I think we miss that sometimes in scripture, that we forget that these were real people. We forget that when Abraham put his son Isaac on the altar, he didn't know how God was going to move. We forget that when uh, Moses tried to overthrow Egypt on his own power and he left and lived in the wilderness for 40 years, he had no idea what God was going to do to his people still suffering in Egypt. We forget sometimes that we know the end of the story. And so I think sometimes we're a little harsh on the disciples. And so at times, as we look at the story, I'm going to be a little harsh on the disciples because I know the end of the story. I know what Jesus was getting at. I know that Jesus was going through Holy Week, which, which, if we're honest, would be a tumultuous week to live with Jesus. You walk in on Palm Sunday and everybody's celebrating, and then it's one cataclysmic event after another with hardly a moment to breathe, and then all of a sudden Jesus is hanging on a cross. It's confusing. It's challenging. And we know the end. We know he's going to be raised. But for a lot of the disciples, they didn't. They didn't have the end in mind in the same way that we did. Confusion is a part of that grief and suffering. And and in confusion is chaos. And in chaos, evil has an opportunity to reign. And so there are times as we look at our passage today that please don't hear me being harsh on them, hear me saying we need to learn the same lessons they needed to learn. 
Because confusion will reign in our lives. There will be moments where we will be confused. There will be moments where we're going to find ourselves with an opportunity to go, God, I don't know the end of the story, but you do. And so I'm going to respond in trust. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to start in verse 31 and 32 of Luke 22. And and I want us to put ourselves in the story. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthened strengthen your brothers. And I think the first thing we need to learn when confusion reigns is number one, we will fail. You will fail. I will fail. We will fail. I think it's interesting that Jesus calls Peter Simon. Again, a thing that I think we forget. I heard somebody this week and they said, Jesus was a great youth pastor because he loved nicknames. And I think that's such a good reminder of the chaos that was the disciples. (laughs) I think it wasn't as neat and tidy as we would like to think it was. Because Simon is a nickname, or Simon is his name, Peter is a nickname, excuse me. Peter is rock. I read a translation of the Gospels that literally put the word rock in instead of Peter. That really drove that point home. Rock, rock, rock. You are a rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. And if you read Luke, Jesus gives Peter, Simon, the nickname Peter, Rock, in Luke 6, and does not use the name Simon in the Gospel of Luke until this moment. Why? Why is he now calling him Simon? Why is he not looking at him and saying, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Why Simon? And we don't really know, but I think it's because Peter is reverting. Peter is going back to his pre-Jesus personality. He is stepping back to before he had that encounter with Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. You will fail. We will revert. You will revert. I will revert. I will go back to acting like I don't know who Jesus is. There will be times where, despite all the truth of the gospel, I will step back and act as if it isn't true. You will fail. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 states, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says that as if it's that easy. I can take it off like a coat, hang it up in the closet, my old self, and never go back to it. I put on the new self and I walk forward and never go back. I don't know about you, but that's not been my reality. My reality is I'm constantly having to remind myself to put off that old self. I'm constantly reverting. I'm constantly going back and living as if I have never encountered Jesus. And the passage isn't just directed at Simon. Satan has asked to sift you all, Jesus says, referencing all the disciples, but I think we can easily apply that to ourselves. As followers of Jesus, Satan wants to divide us. He wants to separate us. He wants to sift us away from the truth of the gospel. And it's true of all the disciples, not just Peter, rock. And we will see Peter do this again, It's not just a one-time mistake for Peter. It's not just a one-time mistake for me. In John 21, 
Jesus has died on the cross. Jesus has resurrected. Jesus has shown himself to Peter. He now has the end more fully in mind. John 21, they're sitting in the upper room. Jesus has appeared to them. Jesus has now left again. And Peter turns to the disciples and says, I'm going fishing. That's not a knock on fishing. I'm not a big fan of fishing myself. It's not wrong to go fishing. The problem was God had called him to be a fisher of men. And he looks and he says, yeah, I'm going back to fishing fish. And the other disciples say, yeah, we'll go with you. And they go out and they catch nothing. And immediately after that is when Jesus comes and reinstates Peter. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. We will revert, we will fail, we will fall back, but the emphasis in the passage is on when you return, when you repent, when you turn back, because repentance is more than apologizing. Repentance is more than looking at God and saying, sorry, repentance literally means to turn. When you turn back, Peter, I've prayed that your faith would not fail. Not that you wouldn't fail, that your faith wouldn't fail. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. We are to use those moments of failing to grow from them, to learn, and to lead others. To lead others to repentance, to lead others to Jesus, to lead others to walk strong in the midst of their failure. We are called to use that to strengthen others. And we, as a Christian church, hold to a belief in repentance as key to our faith. We must repent and turn to Jesus. Luke 22, 33 and through 34, it goes on. But he replied, Peter, Simon replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Lesson one is that we will fail. Lesson two is that you will be humbled. In confusion, we will be humbled. Peter responds, Jesus warns him, hey, you're going to revert. You're going to become Simon again. Peter blows right past it. Not me. Not me, God. I got you. And Jesus needs to humble him. Peter, you are going to deny me three times. He gets specific with him. You think you won't fail. You will. We will be humbled. There will be times in confusion where we will stick our neck out there thinking we are doing what is right, what is good, and we will be humbled. And how many of us can relate to Peter in this story? How many of us, we are the hero of our own story. If my, if my story was a movie, I am Batman. I am not Robin. And I'm definitely not the evil henchman. And we do the same when we encounter scripture, right? When we read the Bible, we are Peter, we are never Judas. We are the woman anointing Jesus' feet. We are never the Pharisees who are judging her. We are Israel calling people to repentance. We are not Jericho hiding in our city denying God. And yet I think if I'm honest with you, I'm not the only one in this room who, if I'm honest with myself, my behavior oftentimes aligns more with the Pharisees than it does with the disciples. That when we read scripture, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who are the ones sometimes denying Jesus or blocking others or failing to repent. And so Jesus calls Peter up short. 
Jesus tried to give Peter a general warning, but Peter missed it. So Jesus pushes into the detail before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And that's not to shame Peter. That's not to humiliate Peter. That's to call Peter in that moment when the rooster crows to realize he needs to repent. And it's a call for Peter to be humble. Because we have a choice. We can either engage in humility on our own or risk being humbled by something else. Because if we look at it and acknowledge that we are sinners in need of repentance and we enter with that attitude of humility, we are less likely to be humbled. Earlier in Luke, in Luke 14, 11, we read this verse, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We have an opportunity to learn to be humble and to learn from being humbled. And as if to drive the point home, Luke doesn't mention this once, he mentions it twice. Jump ahead to Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Do you see the role that humility plays in this? That we are not to look at others and go, well, my sin isn't as bad as that person. Therefore, I am better. We are to look at ourselves and compare ourselves not to each other, but to compare ourselves to God, who is perfect. And in that moment, we should realize our humility. And as much as Jesus focused on prayer at saying, Peter, I am praying for you that your faith would not fail, we also see the role of prayer in this passage in Luke. How do we acknowledge our humility? By spending time with our creator in prayer. If we enter into prayer, we enter into an encounter with God and it helps us remind ourselves who we are and who we are not. God have mercy on me, a sinner, is his prayer. We need to enter into that humility and I would encourage you to do that by entering into prayer. We have a time coming up once a month. We do 24-7 prayer. I would encourage you to sign up for an hour of prayer and spend that time acknowledging your difference with God. Take one hour out of that Wednesday next month and spend that time dwelling on the perfection of God and our own humility, and it will give us much more empathy for those around us. Learn to be humble so you don't have to be humbled. Luke 22, our our passage goes on in verses 35 through 37. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Our third lesson 
is you will feel confusion, which is a little redundant. In confusion, you will feel confusion. I get it. But I think we need to acknowledge that confusion. We need to acknowledge that it's okay to be confused. And in that, to acknowledge that we are the ones confused, not God. God is not confused. Jesus, as he shares this with the disciples, is not confused. We read it and we're a little confused. I don't get what's going on. But God is not confused. We are. So acknowledge that confusion. Have you ever talked to somebody and you've realized that they're not really listening to you? They're framing their reply as you get started. Maybe you've had a conversation with a kid. Uh, Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's somebody else's child. And you start talking to them about their behavior. And before you really get into it, they've already formulated their response. In my house, it generally starts with, yeah, but... Some people have apparently heard that. (laughs) Yeah, but... And I think that's a little bit what's going on here with the disciples. Jesus is talking to them. Earlier, he had sent them out as evangelists into the countryside to share the gospel. And he said, rely on me for everything. Don't take extra sandals. Don't take any money. Rely on me. And he's referencing that. He says, hey, when I sent you out that time, did I send you with anything? They said, no. And he goes on and says, the situation has changed. You are facing a new normal. Now, he knows that what's about to change is his death and resurrection, that he physically won't be with them anymore. I don't think they're really listening to him. They moved into packing checklist mode. He says, now if you have a sandal, if you have sandals, take them and a purse, take it, money, take it. And if you don't have a sword, sell everything. And then he jumps into something else And they respond, we'll see, by pulling out, yeah, we have two swords. They're not really listening to what he's saying, in my opinion. They've moved into checklist mode. You need a purse, you need sandals, you need a bag, and you need a sword. Check, check, check. Oh, sword, we don't have a sword. Where's the sword? When you feel confusion, we need to stop and listen. When we feel confusion, we need to look back and see what God has done already. To trust that he is not confused, we are. 1 Samuel 7 is one of my favorite passages, and in it, Israel has been backsliding for years. And and in that backsliding, they've walked away from God, but now they have turned back. In 1 Samuel 7, they have repented. They have turned back to God. And they gather to worship, having finally put their faith entirely in God. They gather to worship, and the Philistines see them gathering to worship and assume they're gathering for war. And the Philistines move out. And the Israelites do what they were meant to do the whole time. They turn not to themselves and not to the magical power of of the ark that they thought the ark had. They turn to God and they say, Samuel, do not stop praying for us. And in that moment, God shows up. Not before, not after, in that moment. It reminds me of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings where Gandalf says... A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he meant to. And isn't that often true about God? God isn't confused. He arrives exactly on time. It might not be when I wanted him to show up. And I think of that, and I think of how I landed here at Wyzetta Free. And some people in this room know this story, but most of you probably do not. I was serving at a different church. I'd been there for five years. My time at that church was ending. I found out, we found out, my wife and I were expecting uh, twins. I needed a job because I was losing my job. And so I started looking for full-time employment. 
I sent resumes out. I was, I was interviewing at churches. I got an offer from a church, not why is that a free, to be the full-time youth pastor at that church. And in that moment, I felt like God was telling me no. No, Bruce, in this moment, this makes no sense on paper, but you need to turn down full-time employment with benefits and be in seminary and be part-time at a church because you can't be a full-time student, a full-time pastor, and a full-time parent. Okay, God, that doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm going to do it. And I called Wyzetta Free Church because Wyzetta Free Church was a spot where I'd applied for a full-time ministry position that was open. And I called to pull my name from consideration for that position. And I talked to my friend, Kevin Campbell, who used to be on staff here at Wyzetta Free, and I told him I was going to pull my name from consideration. He said, why? I said, because God has told me I need to find a part-time ministry position. And there was a pause on the phone, and, and finally he responded, and he said, well, that's interesting because the elder board at Wyzetta Free just voted to not hire a full-time youth pastor. Can we leave your name in for consideration? And in that moment, I said yes, because I needed a job. (laughs) And I was looking for a part-time job. And lo and behold, here was one. But after the fact, I paused and I looked back and I went, hey, wait a minute. God was at work. I was confused. That didn't make any sense to me. Made perfect sense to God. We need to look back and we need to look back and celebrate what God has done. And when we feel confusion, we need to stop and listen and remind ourselves that he is not confused, we are. Because the situation for the disciples was about to change. But now, he says, you're facing a new reality. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written... And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. The disciple said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Because in confusion, we also need to remind ourselves that he will overcome, not us. The emphasis here is not on physical safety and physical well-being. The reference to swords is not to them arming themselves because the swords that he references, the word he uses is a short sword, a defensive sword not a broad sword. And in fact, he he gets mad at them for finding two, which if you're talking about defensive weaponry for 12 people, two short swords is not enough. And then he says, that's enough. And the that's enough there is similar to the that's enough that a parent says to their kids in the back seat when they ask for the 10th time, are we there yet? It's an authoritative that's enough. I'm done with this conversation. That's enough. Jesus is wanting them to get spiritually armed for the situation that's about to change. He's wanting them to see the desperation needed for God. I will not be with you physically after this moment, so be prepared to depend on the Holy Spirit. And be so desperate for that, that if you need to sell your very security to get it, do it. And I think they miss it because they're working on the checklist and they don't see what Jesus moves into. Jesus moves into a conversation about why he is about to die. That we need to rely on him to be our overcomer. And we need to learn to listen. That prayer is not a laundry list of needs for God to fulfill, but a time for us to hear and to listen, to celebrate what God has done, and listen for what he is about to do. 
We need that spiritual armament with us as well. And the disciples get confused in this moment because it's a confusing time. This conversation happens after the Last Supper and before they go to prayer in the garden where they fall asleep when Jesus says, remember how I mentioned, give up everything, even your very security to arm yourself spiritually? Let's go pray. And they miss it. And they take a nap. But again, let's not be harsh on them. How many of us have missed it? How many of us have not trusted that God will overcome and we've put it on ourselves to arm ourselves physically with a better job, with a better house, with a better nest egg, with a better set of friends, with a better whatever. How many of us have taken that on ourselves and not relied on God to overcome, but have done what we could to overcome? But look at what he references. He's talking about Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 starts with the suffering that is so appropriate in this season, the suffering servant. Verses 4 through 6. And notice the dissonance between him and us in this passage. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus turns to the disciples and says that he is numbered among the transgressors. He is referencing the cross. He is referencing what is about to come. He is referencing Isaiah 53. And we need to start at the beginning to realize that we are the transgressors he is numbered with. Oftentimes we read that passage and think he's talking about the criminals hanging on the cross next to him. That he was numbered with the transgressors. And that's true. They were transgressors. But look at Isaiah 53. We are the transgressors. The portion that Jesus quotes is verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We rely on God to overcome because we are the transgressors that Jesus is numbered with. And praise God for that. Praise God that Jesus looked at us in our sin and said, I can take that. I can be your overcomer because you can't. And so our response when Jesus overcomes, our appropriate response is to repent and to worship and to acknowledge that we need that savior and to acknowledge that we can't do it. We are confused. We are lost. We are humbled. We have failed. He has not. And we need him. So would you pray with me? Father God, we repent We repent that we have failed and fallen short. God, we repent that we have sinned in what we have done and in what we have left undone. God, we confess that we need you to overcome our sin for us. God, be at work. Thank you for this reminder of Lent, this time to confess and repent. God, to confess not only our sins, but to confess the truth that you are our overcomer. We praise you in your name. Amen.